All right, please remain standing for just a moment longer as we read through the text from Romans. Romans 16, verses 17 to 24. Now I urge you, brethren, note those who cause divisions and offenses contrary to the doctrine which you learned, and avoid them. For those who are such do not serve our Lord Christ, but their own belly, and by smooth words and flattering speech deceive the hearts of the simple. For your obedience has become known to all. Therefore I am glad on your behalf, but I want you to be wise in what is good and simple concerning evil. And the God of peace will crush Satan under your feet shortly. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. Amen. Amen. Verse 21. Timothy, my fellow worker, and Lucius, Jason, and Sosipater, my countrymen, greet you. I, Tertius, who wrote this epistle, greet you in the Lord. Gaius, my host, and the host of the whole church, greets you. Erastus, the treasurer of the city, greets you. And Cordus, a brother, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Amen. You may be seated. And remember that the verses that are normally listed is verses uh, 25 through 27. The majority text has them at uh, right after chapter 14, verse 23. And so, my understanding, based upon the providential preservation of the text, is that that is the end of the book. All right, so, verse 17, we've spent a significant chunk of time talking already about divisions and offenses, and so last time we worked through talking about how to avoid divisions and offenses. We talked about um, the process of conflict resolution according to Scripture. I pointed you to Matthew 18 and also Acts chapter 15 for the discussion of public controversy, and we talked about the four G's of conflict resolution taken from Ken Sandy's Uh, the peacemaker, to glorify God in conflict, looking for that as the goal. The idea of when you begin, if you're aware of offenses, seeking to get the log out of your own eye before rebuking, then gently rebuking, and then we talked about how the goal is to go and be reconciled. The goal is to have forgiveness occur or to have, we listed out other possible acceptable results, for example, the ending by accepting a just defense, right? You could give a rebuke and the just defense could be accepted and therefore the rebuke can be withdrawn. But we talked about the, the possibilities. We even talked about some hard cases. Um, so I would encourage you to make sure to review those and to seek to be familiar with that uh, and to also remember the seven A's of how to give a biblical apology and the four promises of forgiveness so that you understand what you're committing to when you are forgiving. So we talked about that. And so I simply want to remind you that there's an importance here that when you avoid people, it's important to go through a biblical process of conflict resolution. So we don't just think, oh, this person's divisive, this person's bad, this person's causing offenses, make a private judgment, not talk to the person, and just start avoiding them, right? We don't do that. What we do is we go to our brother and rebuke them if it's a private offense. We go to our brother, perhaps with the other people who are around, if it just occurs in front of some other people, the level of publicity is the level of the rebuke. So if there's a false teaching from the pulpit, it's appropriate for the men at the time of comments or questions to raise a concern, right? That's a public rebuke for a public teaching. So we talked about the level of publicity. 
So that's the, the principle of forum, right, where you, where you are, uh, what the appropriate place is for the rebuke. So I want to emphasize a, a few other things as we're running through that as a review. Now, I urge you, brethren, note those who cause divisions and offenses contrary to the doctrine which you learned and avoid them. So this noting is a formal noting that occurs through the process of church discipline. Before church discipline uh, is finalized, you are in conflict, and being in conflict, you're not in peace, right? So you are dealing with other people's offenses, and you're working through the process of seeking to bring about restoration. So we talk about the type of people who cause offenses, and there's a, a list there uh, on page one. I've kept that, but we're not going to run through it again. Um, on page two, if you go to F, this is the process for dealing with division. I had this I've, on the, the old paper, and I fleshed it out a little bit. And what I want to do is to, to reiterate a couple of key points here. I'm lying. It's not a couple. It's seven. You can look at the Roman numerals. There's seven of them. A couple in the loose sense. Make resolving conflicts a priority. Nobody likes conflict. Conflict's not fun. If you do like conflict, we should talk. And the problem is that conflict resolution is, is not fun. It's difficult. And so it's easy to procrastinate on it. So you have to make resolving conflict a priority. So the Lord has given us a principle. He says that if you are going to the altar and you realize that your brother has an offense or you have an offense against your brother, that it's supposed to serve as a reminder. And so the principle we have is right, you come to the Lord's table. We have the Lord's table in the evening service every week. That should be a reminder. If you come to the table and you, uh, you realize that there's an offense there, you need to do one of two things. You either need to say, I need to not come to the table right now because I don't want to take this hypocritically, um, in which case, if somebody's not coming to the table, right, I'm going to come and, and ask, okay, what's going on? And that will kind of uh, help to push that along the way. You might just say, I have a, an offense with somebody. I need to deal with it. I go, okay, I'll, I'll talk to you next week if you're not at the table again. But the other thing is, um, if you are in a place where you're going, all right, so I need to, if I'm taking the Lord's Supper, I am re-swearing to follow biblical conflict resolution. And so you can, you can if there's some legitimate basis for going, we weren't able to get this going, you need to at least get it on the calendar. Right? You need to talk to somebody and say, we have a plan to deal with this. And if you don't have a plan to deal with it in place, an agreement, if you don't have conflict resolution in process, even if something's not resolved, then you are committing when you take the Lord's Supper to do that. And so if you have not sought to do that, you need to refrain. If you are in process, you are recommitting at the Lord's table to continue through that process. And until that's done. Now, if you give up on it at any point, you just go, this isn't worth it. I'm not going to do this. I'm not going to work through this then you cannot take the Lord's Supper. It would be hypocritical to take a sign of the communion of the saints and of the reconciliation that we have in Christ if you're not intending to carry on and complete that reconciliation process. It doesn't have to be resolved, but it has to be in process. So, uh, making resolving conflicts a priority. Two, when you're in conflict, if you're the stronger brother, or if you think you're the stronger brother, you need to bear with the weak. Don't let the weak tyrannize you by imposing rules that are against your liberty in Christ. But you can give up your liberties for a period of time. But if somebody seeks to impose those rules on you by making them into a, a matter of uh, church judgment, 
making them into a, a matter where it's dealt with as though it's sin, but it's not something that you can show from Scripture is sin, you have to resist that. But while people are working through conflicts, and there's a dispute about whether something is obligatory or not, or whether something's sin or not, you bear with the weaknesses of each other and seek to avoid causing offenses where you can. The third point, refusing to let extra-biblical opinions or contra-biblical opinions be imposed as rules of faith or practice. So remember, we, we have weakness of faith, which is not believing what you should, right? not believing everything that's been revealed. But then there's things that are human traditions or practices that are from outside of the Bible or things that even just contradict the Bible. right? So those things, you can't submit to that in the process of conflict. So these are things that you have to be aware of. What can you do in terms of bearing with other people or bearing burdens in the process of conflict resolution versus what you're not allowed to? Point four, when you're resolving conflicts, seek to clearly identify differences that are sin versus differences that are matters of opinion versus differences that are purely about the form of words. So, one example, uh, a difference that's, that's sin right, is going to be something that the law of God teaches you to do a duty. The other person says, no, we shouldn't do that, or, or we don't have a responsibility to do that. You should neglect that duty. So let's say, fathers, you have a duty to feed your children with the word. You have a duty to wash your wife with the word. right? And somebody says, no, you don't need to do that. You don't need to give daily bread to your children. You don't need to, to wash your wife in the word. This idea that, well, that's, that's sin. That's contrary to the teaching of the scriptures. Um, you're teaching people to not do a duty that God requires. So you need to engage on that and deal with that as a point of difference that's sin. Um, versus something about an opinion might be somebody thinks, when we do private worship or family worship, we believe that we should pray at the beginning, and then we also pray at before the reading of the word, and after the reading of the word, and before we sing a psalm, and after you go, how many times should you pray there? Well, there's not a command about how many times to pray in private worship. There's not something laid out there in household worship. That's a matter of opinion. You're choosing to do that. But uh, on the other side, common points of conflict, here are common points of conflict in churches that are matters of opinion. They're matters of science and not what the scriptures teach. What diet is best? What method of homeschooling is best? What, um, what exercise regime should be used? Right, these are things that are, that, are, that are things that people can have strong opinions about. And it's important that we recognize things that are matters of opinion, that are an effort to apply the law of God. Those are all, mostly those are examples of things like you know, diet and exercise. are going to be things where you say, these are things where I'm trying to keep the sixth commandment by seeking to carefully study the means of preserving the body. But which diet, which type of exercise... Those are things that are a matter of opinion. They're not taught on in the Word in a way as to give us knowledge of which diet to have. We have principles like eat in moderation. We have principles like that we should uh, have physical training, that physical training is good. It's of some value, Paul says, which means it's not of no value. Right? But he's comparing it to the higher value of the knowledge of God. So we deal with matters of opinion, and we need to say matters of opinion are not things that we can impose on other people. So then you have differences that are purely about the form of words. Have you ever had a doctrinal dispute with somebody and realized that you're saying the same thing in different ways? So often, figuring out what the other person means is all that's necessary. 
You know, so we talk about the doctrine of saving faith. Let's say, you know, I, I think that it is most clear to say that saving faith is understanding the revealed doctrine and believing what has been delivered, right? So you understand and believe the gospel. Other people prefer to use the form using the three, um, the three elements of faith saying uh, they believe that there's understanding and assenting to and trusting. So I would say trusting is just applying it to yourself. Or the way that you hear, for example, Dr. Robert Godfrey describe it, he might say that it's assurance. If you listen to the way he teaches on the third point, it sounds like he's saying assurance is essentially there. So you'll say, okay, there's understanding the gospel, believing the gospel is true, and thinking it applies to you, or being assured of your salvation. I would say that those psychological activities understanding and believing are all that you need to describe what saving faith is but somebody else wants to talk about this third element of trust and try to say that it's different from the act of believing or assenting but if they're just saying you have to believe it applies to you even though there's a different form of words there they're not adding anything they're not they're not that's not another gospel it's a different form of words and we can debate about which one is more clear but it's not a different gospel. Whereas, if somebody starts to say that there's an experience that needs to be added, or if they say that you have to have enough works or fruit, or if they say that there is some amount of internal moral change that has to have occurred in order for the faith to actually be faith, then what you have is adding something to the definition of saving faith. So the meaning of the third term is important. So we, when we talk about the meaning of terms, that is a, a very important part of any dispute and trying to understand what the other party even means and being careful to not try to force a pattern of words. That is what the scriptures mean when they say to not wrangle over words, is if we just by private opinion seek to impose, I prefer to say it this way and I want you to say it this way too. Now, on the other side of that, there is a danger for heresy where somebody chooses to intentionally say things in a less clear way. And so the things that have been worked upon and captured in a confessional standard, when, we, when if somebody refuses to accept the pattern of words that have been adopted in the confessional standard, if that confessional standard is in accordance with the word of God, a refusal to accept that pattern of words, is a refusal to be clear. Right, so the Westminster Standards that we have adopted, if somebody were to say, I'm not willing to confess that or to affirm that, we'd have to deal with, well, show us from the scriptures how this is wrong. Show us how this is in error. We've adopted this and we are confessing as a church that the Westminster Confession, the larger catechism, the shorter catechism, are an accurate statement of the doctrine of scripture. And so, a refusal to deal with those words and to deal with the clarity that has been laid out in a confessional standard, that becomes an unwillingness, an uncorrectableness, an unwillingness to submit to the legitimate authority of the church if the church is rightly teaching what the Word of God says. And so we don't want to use our private opinions to impose forms of words on people. But we also need to be aware that the church over time, as it matures, 
deals with things like the doctrine of the Trinity. And last week, remember, we talked about homoousios versus homoousios. And so, sure, is it true to say that Christ in his divine nature is of a similar essence with the Father? Yes, so similar that it's the same. But when you decline away from the truth to a less clear statement after the church has written that out, has adopted it through much discussion and said, this is what the scriptures teach, moving to the less clear becomes a rejection of the authority of the church. So I've tried to lay out two differences private use of words and trying to force people into the mold of how you prefer to say things versus a confessional standard where the church has worked through a doctrine and said, we've adopted this position through much discussion, through public process, and if this is what the scriptures teach, then you are obligated to be willing to confess this. So we have to deal with those uh, differences So identifying points of agreement and disagreement often comes down to defining terms. So you have to be willing to talk about definitions, and you have to know the difference between wrangling over words versus not. Now, uh, point five there, identifying points of agreement uh, that are more basic. If you don't agree that the Scripture is the infallible Word of God, arguing over the doctrine of justification is going to be pretty fruitless. And so you need to figure out where do you agree or disagree at more basic levels. And so you need to understand the Westminster Confession, one of the glorious things about it, if you look at its table of contents, it goes from more basic to less basic. It starts with how do you know, and it moves to the definition of God and the Trinity, and it goes from there into God's decree and God's control of all things. It breaks it into categories of creation and providence, and then When you get into providence, it starts to lay out the things that God has done in history, including his work of redemption. And so we look through that, and you see the Westminster Confession provides you with a really great map of more basic to less basic. And so understanding, when you're you're arguing, for example, over the doctrine of justification, it's chapter 11, you might want to ask, do we agree about the first ten chapters? Because right, if you disagree about chapter 1, or you disagree about the definition of God, you're going to find that you have a really hard time coming to agreement about chapter 11. And so, when you're arguing, for example, with a Romanist, they don't agree about chapter 1. They have a different doctrine of authority. And because they have a different doctrine of authority, you, know, you can tell them the gospel, and in fact you should, the Lord might use it to convert them, Right? You tell them the gospel of justification by grace alone, through faith alone, in the meritorious work of Christ alone. And you then seek to quickly go to the doctrine of authority. So you tell them the gospel, and you go to, well, the scriptures say this, and I believe that the scriptures are the authority, and the scriptures attest to their own authority, and so what do you believe about a doctrine of authority? And if they believe in the authority of the Pope, then helping to deconstruct that is going to help them to let go of an idol or they'll harden and hold on to that more tightly. So understanding, figuring out where do you agree at more basic levels, what's the earliest point of of agreement? You're trying to find that. 
Now, in a church context, it's a lot easier to, to have a prolonged conversation and make that happen. If you're just talking to somebody else who you don't know all that well, the likelihood of being able to go through prolonged conflict resolution is low. But in the church context, guess what? We've all sworn, we've all covenanted, we've all been bound to do that. And so going through that, you have the ability to move more slowly with greater confidence that you are going to be able to resolve those things and to work through them. So, um, point six. After the conflict is resolved, I talked about this last time, applying balm. If the person who is in the wrong repents, or if you find that you you thought you disagreed with each other and it was just a matter of the form of words, intentionally seek to have a positive interaction where you're rebuilding the bond, where you're strengthening the bond. Have hospitality. Have fellowship. Seek to do some good work together. Seek to have one of you bless the other. Now, there are times that might be inappropriate, right? If somebody's engaged in a serious covenant-breaking activity or some kind of criminal type of behavior, I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about the general sort of offenses that occur throughout life. So, the other thing I want to say here is, point six, if you're the person who's in the wrong, do not act with a sense of entitlement about being able to go and fellowship together. Yes, it is good if the person who is, um, who is forgiving restores and then seeks to do something soon thereafter. But I do not want to create a sense of the person who's been the one causing offenses to feel like, well, now I have a right to do something with you because we need to have balm applied. That's not the case. It's an act of, of grace. It's a gift of favor on the part of the person who's forgiven. So I'm encouraging who's forgiving. So I'm encouraging the party who's forgiving to reach out and make an extra effort to apply balm but that's not something that could be disciplined if it's not done. That's not sin to not do. It's just it's a good work if it is done. It helps to strengthen bonds. All right, so um, point seven. When you're resolving differences, the goal is to have a clear and good solution, preferably the best and most clear solution, right? That would be the, the, the best. Having the best? And so one of the things I want to encourage you to do is when you're in a dispute about whether you think somebody's committed sin or, or not, applying the scriptures, in particular, going to the larger catechism and looking at the Ten Commandments to see, does it address the subject? Because it's very thorough. The larger catechism on the Ten Commandments does an excellent job of laying out detailed applications and providing scripture texts as proofs so you can look at the particular application. And so that ability to go to those sections of the larger catechism to discuss how, whether this is a legitimate offense or how it should be resolved, those are things that you will find very helpful and time-saving and will help you to choose what the wisdom of our forebearers in the faith, what they have found in the scriptures, it will help you to save a lot of time and select the best conclusions to matters. All right, so that's a kind of flyover of some of the stuff we talked about before. Um, and I'm going to skip over point six. We talked about what offenses are last time. Let's go to, to page three. Point seven and eight we've already talked about. Um, so I'm going to go to verse 18 on page three there. For those who are such do not serve our Lord Christ, but their own belly 
and by smooth words and flattering speech deceive the hearts of the simple. For your obedience has become known to all. Therefore I am glad on your behalf, but I want you to be wise in what is good and simple concerning evil. So, I want to remind you of the fact that those who are divisive or those who are offense causers, we are not allowed in particular cases to assume we know people's motives. That would be an uncharitable dealing with an individual. But at the same time, we have to be as wise as serpents while being harmless as doves. What does that mean? It means you don't assume that somebody else has the worst possible motive when they commit an offense. But you do take actions to protect yourself in case they do. So, that takes the form of thinking, if somebody did have the motive of using smooth words and flattering speech to serve their own belly, what would they do to prey upon the sheep? And you take actions that would limit that. So, I'm preaching, I'm unclear, you find that I'm talking about one doctrine one way with one group, and I'm talking about that same doctrine in a different way with a different group. Am I people-pleasing in order to shear the sheep? How do you deal with that? You find an opportunity to discuss that doctrine, maybe not by just coming and rebuking me in private, maybe you don't rebuke me at all. Maybe what you do is you seek to have a conversation about that doctrine in front of people from both groups. And put me on the spot about, what do you think about this doctrine? Do you see how that would make it so that I have to speak clearly? So you're trapping me into having to be clear. That's not a sin against me. But it is you being as wise as serpents, and you're not doing any harm to me. You're being harmless as doves, but you're making it so that my wolfiness, if I'm a wolf, has to come out. Or, one party is going to be very disappointed and they're going to go, wait a second. I thought you said A. And the other party says, no, he said non-A. And so then, that has to get dealt with, right? So you're causing a clarification movement. So, there's a danger, especially with the divisive and the offense causers, with heretics. There's a danger of the use of smooth words and flattering speech to deceive the hearts of the simple in order to serve their own belly. And so you think about how can you wisely deal with that. Acts 15, as an example of public dispute, right, is an excellent example for us. Public dispute, transparency, is so wonderful. And we have the apostolic example of public dispute for matters of doctrine and practice. And so we have council meetings that are public, and those are a place where there's a, you can bring up a matter of concern. And so you have that idea of, of you know, a head of a house bringing that to a congregational meeting as a concern and being able to talk about that in an orderly way. You can simply talk about a doctrine, talk about a practice, and be able to see what do the scriptures teach. So transparency and publicity of public matters is an important part of helping to prevent the harm of those who would serve their own bellies. Verse 19, For your obedience has become known to all. Remember we talked about this, the, that the idea is a church becomes known as faithful, a church starts to have growth, 
people are coming to it because they go, ah, a bastion of conservatism, a bastion of whatever. And so then all of a sudden, a church with a good reputation becomes a target of those who would seek to undermine that church or of those who would seek to use the growth or preeminence of that church for their own belly. So a good reputation is good, but it has certain dangers. Therefore, I'm glad on your behalf. Paul is saying a good reputation is a blessing. It's worth more than gold, right? That's what Proverbs says. But I want you to be wise in what is good and simple concerning evil. So we talked about the the idea of simplicity relating uh, to this idea of not having advanced thought on evil, not thinking about it in detail, not not thinking about how to apply it. Um, If you're experienced in evil as opposed to simple in evil, uh, that would be a bad thing. Uh, That is something that you want... If you have a, a history where there's some area of sin where you go, I, I thought about this a lot. I have a lot of developed thoughts about this sin and how to enjoy this sin. And, and, and the, there's particular things here that, that haunt me about a past sin. You ask for the Lord to remove that. You study against it. You preach to yourself against that sin. And you seek to make those things that were details about how to commit that sin in a way that was pleasing to yourself you try to make those things fade into forgetfulness rather than renewing them in your mind over and over again. You don't want to uh, meditate on the enjoyments, the passing pleasures of sin, but rather you want to encourage a simplicity in your own thinking about evils and to quickly kind of have a reaction against it, to remove it from your mind and to remove it from what's in front of you. Now, um, I want to jump down to point 10, okay, on page 3. Talk about the, the divisive. They have a certain sort of workmanship. Right? A good preacher doesn't have a need to be ashamed of his workmanship because he's going to faithfully apply the Word of God, and the result should be quality workmanship that others can, example, sorry, can examine. The result should be good workmanship that others can examine. Um, so, one of the things I want to emphasize again against the, dis- the, the divisive is the work of, of the public ministry of the church and of councils and process to deal with sort of grinding out heresy and divisiveness. Philipp- Acts chapter 15, again, is obviously a great text for that, but I want to point to Philippians 3, verses 12 to 15. And I would ask you, to store this text up in your heart. I would encourage you to meditate on this during the Sabbath today. This particular text is a valuable one for thinking about um, the idea of the point at which the church has reached for maturity. Okay, So Ephesians talks about the process of the maturing of the church. Um, the book of Ecclesiastes, at the end of it, it talks about how scholars, they organize words like well-placed nails, Okay, and this idea of fitting things into place to make it so they're held down. Okay, so Philippians 3 deals with the same sort of subject. Not that I have already, this is the Apostle Paul, he's saying, not that I've already attained or am already perfected, but I press on that I may lay hold of that for which Christ Jesus has also laid hold of me. Brethren, I do not count myself to have apprehended, to, to grab hold, But one thing I do, forgetting those things which are behind and reaching forward to those things which are ahead, I press toward the goal 
for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Therefore, let us, as many as are mature, have this mind. And if in anything you think otherwise, God will reveal even this to you. Nevertheless, to the degree that we have already attained, let us walk by the same rule, let us be of the same mind. Alright, so the Apostle Paul here is talking about he's not perfect. He has not personally attained to the highest points of maturity or of perfection in the knowledge of God. But he presses on. He presses on because he has the goal of doing what Christ saved him to do. Which is to know God more and to spread the knowledge of God to the nations. Right? To set up the church and to help to mature the church. Right? Ephesians talks about officers being given for the equipping of the saints, for the ministry of the saints, for the maturing of the church. So, he says in verse 13, Brethren, I do not count myself to have apprehended. He's not, I, haven't, I haven't gotten there. Right? He's not, Paul's not there. He's not, he's not done. Oh, I've gotten there. No more running. No more moving. No more striving. There's no sinless perfection in this life except for Christ. But one thing I do, forgetting those things which are behind and reaching forward to those things which are ahead. So the the attainments that have already been gained, he doesn't sit on his laurels. He doesn't say, look how much better I am than everybody else. There's no patting himself on the back and sitting there going, all the stuff I've already done, all the times I got stoned, beaten 39 times, right? Those things, not going to sit on that. All the revelations I've received, not going to sit on that. I'm going to press forward. I'm going to advance. I'm going to move onward. Whatever level of sanctification you have reached, you should reach forward to those things that are ahead. I press toward the goal. What's the goal? The goal is to see the earth filled with the knowledge of God as the waters cover the sea. For you to be a deep repository of that knowledge and for you to spread that knowledge to others. And when you pour that water out, your bucket does not become less full. It becomes more full. The bucket grows and it fills other people's buckets and their buckets grow. It's pretty good water. And so that water, that knowledge of God, the living water, as you grow in possession of it, and as you spread it, there's this filling that's occurring. So forgetting those things that are behind and reaching forward to those things that are ahead, I press toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. What's the prize? The prize is, as Paul seeks to advance the goal, he gets more knowledge of God. As he applies the law he becomes more consistent. As he thinks and teaches about it, you who teach, do you not teach yourself? And there are rewards. Some rule one city, some rule ten cities, right? The the person who received ten talents, managed it well, and ruled ten cities, right? There's a reward in the resurrection, and there's also an enjoyment of an increasing knowledge here. Right? So there is 
This is not talking about justification by works. This is talking about the blessings of applying the law being already justified. Verse 15, Therefore, let us, as many as are mature, have this mind. Who are the mature? Right? John talks about the children in the faith, the young men in the faith, the fathers in the faith. Who are the mature? The same group as John talks about in 1 John that are the fathers. There's the children in the faith, they know God. And the fathers are also said to know God. But instead of the fathers that they know God, it says it twice. So what's the difference between the child and the father? The more mature has a greater knowledge of God. And so, those who are mature, well, think about this. The person who's mature in the church in 300 A.D., they had the Nicene Creed down. So good. They were ready to be able, sorry, the 4th century, the 300s, the, they were ready to be able to talk about the doctrine of the Trinity. They were able to defend the doctrine of the Trinity against heresy, against the Arians. We've had 1,700 years. Would a mature person in the church today be benefiting from a more mature church or a less mature church? A more mature church. We have captured for us a lot more that's easily accessible. We have the benefits of the Reformation and the benefits of the engagement against liberalism in the early 1900s. So we have the conflicts of the church that we can benefit from as they took the word of God and tore down the high places of the enemy. And so we should be able to benefit from the more organized, more systematized pulling together of the word. And so the mature today should be those who are understanding the confessional standard, which is more full than what was reached a millennium ago. So therefore, let us, as many as are mature, those who are mature in the faith, those who have reached a point of maturity that is catching up to the point of maturity of the church, they should have this mind. And if in anything you think otherwise, God will reveal even this to you. So if you, if you have a point at which you are opposed to what has been attained to, if you are pursuing the knowledge of God, God will sanctify His people. He will mature you. He will bring you to unity of the faith. Nevertheless, to the degree that we have already attained, let us walk by the same rule. Let us be of the same mind. So the same rule would be we apply the law of God. We work through details of how we apply the law of God. And we agree that we should all behave in this way. On the other side, having the same mind is the confession of doctrine. And so we should all confess the same doctrine of the Trinity, the, all, the, the same doctrine of justification. We should all confess the same doctrine, name it, down the line, what's been captured at the point of maturity that the church has reached. And we want to confess everything in the Word of God together. But we will die before we get there. And the hope is that across generations, there's a maturing of the church and a passing on of the dominion and discipleship work, and that God will, 
accomplish the work of discipleship to disciple the nations and to fill the earth with the knowledge of God. So verse 19. For your obedience has become known to all. Therefore I am glad on your behalf, but I want you to be wise in what is good and simple concerning evil. We talked about that and the reputation. We talked about the threats and benefits of having a good reputation and being wise in what's good and simple in what's evil. Let's go to verse 20. And the God of peace will crush Satan under your feet shortly. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. Amen. Alright, so this idea that the God of peace will crush Satan under your feet shortly. First of all, notice the God of peace will crush Satan under your feet. He wins wars to bring about peace. He's not a pacifist God. The God of the Bible is the God of war. Not in some pagan Greek way, but in the sense that he defines right war, he defines wrong war, and he wins all the wars he fights. The God of peace will crush Satan under your feet shortly. Now, the first time there's a discussion about the crushing of Satan, the language is not that Satan will be crushed under your feet, it's that he'll be crushed under the feet of the seed of the woman. Look at Genesis 3, verses 14 and 15. I have it there on the handout. So the Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, you are cursed more than all cattle and more than every beast of the field. On your belly you shall go and you shall eat dust all the days of your life. And I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. So your seed and her seed. The her seed there, we have this this singular person, the Lord Jesus Christ. If you've been around long, you've heard me say this, but it's an oddity to talk about her seed. Normally the language is talk, it talks about the seed of the man. This talks about the seed of the woman, which is the first prophecy of the virgin birth. And so what we have, in terms of the prophecy of the virgin birth here, we have the Messiah, the promised seed of the woman. He is going to crush the head of Satan. That word bruised, you could translate crushed. And you shall bruise his heel. There's this, uh, again, the word bruised is crushed. And when a venomous serpent strikes a heel in a time before antivenom, what happens? The person who's bitten dies. Okay, so the heel here, the idea of the foot, right, has to do with dominion and the crushing underfoot, the dominating. But in the process of crushing Satan, Christ dies, right? He dies. And his dying is the means by which he crushes Satan. And so, there's a certain sense in which when Paul wrote this, Satan had already been crushed. He'd already been defeated at the cross. Now, at the same time, there's this ongoing warfare between the seed of the serpent and the seed of the woman. This is the doctrine of the antithesis. All those who serve Satan are at war with all those who serve God. And so we can go from the particular war here between Christ and Satan, and we know that applies to the kingdom of Christ and 
the kingdom of Satan, the kingdom of darkness. And we also know that there's this war between the spirit and the flesh. And those that are saved, those that are still alive, those that have not yet been glorified, there's that war between the flesh and the spirit. Right? The indwelling sin and the quickening, the enlivening by the work of the spirit that's occurring. Now, Psalm 47, which we'll sing after the sermon, says that God is going to subdue the peoples under us and the nations under our feet. That's His people. So what I want to suggest to you is that Revelation chapter 20, verses 1 through 3, you know I'm partial preterist, Postmillennial. Revelation chapter 20, verses 1 to 3. It says this, Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, having the key to the bottomless pit and a great chain in his hand. He laid hold of the dragon, the serpent of old, who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years. And he cast him into the bottomless pit and shut him up and set a seal on him so that he should deceive the nations no more till the thousand years were finished. But after these things, he must be released for a little while. Now, some people will say that that little while, that releasing is a rebellion that occurs before the day of judgment. Um, I believe that that is, a, that is the day of judgment, the resurrection of the, of the reprobate, preparing them for the day to be judged. So, uh, Pastor Ken Gentry, in his uh, discussion, he would take the view that there is a rebellion before the day of judgment. Pastor Phil Kaiser would take the view that this is on the, the day of, of judgment is what that rebellion is, is that releasing. It's on the day of judgment. So those are sort of the two views there. I'm not saying you have to take my position on that. Um, I think that both of them have done an excellent job writing about the book of Revelation and providing commentaries there and uh, benefited from both of their work dramatically uh, in the book of Revelation. What I'm saying here is I believe that when Paul says that the God of peace will crush Satan under your feet shortly, he didn't mean 2,000 years from then. What he's talking about is the binding of Satan and throwing him into the pit, which doesn't remove all demonic activity. But what is occurring here, what is occurring here is... Satan is bound, the nations are being undeceived, and so when 70 AD occurred with the destruction of Jerusalem, after God used the apostate Jews and God used Rome to have enemies of the church fight each other and to absorb each other's wrath, that there is at that point a weakening of the dominion of Satan by having him be bound and having him be cast into torment. And what's happening is the taking possession of the inheritance of the nations following that in a greater degree. You have Pentecost power going forth and the word going out. But after 70 AD, there's a greater advance that occurs. And so... A part of that is because of the fact that the church was spared. The church believed 
the warnings of Jesus to leave Jerusalem when armies circled Jerusalem around and, and going to Pella or Petra to, to hide. You have many of the Christian Jews, the, the believing Jews, escaping, being saved, and being able to go out and to be able to take the gospel to other cities, other nations, and to be able to support the advance work that had already been done of church planting by people like the Apostle Paul. So this crushing of Satan under the feet would be particularly encouraging to a church in Rome because they are going to see the rising of horrific and tyrannical power and great oppression of the church and being aware of the fact that there would be a crushing of Satan under the feet shortly would give great encouragement to deal with persecution and to be able to carry through. So this, uh, this text here, the God of peace will crush Satan under your feet shortly. There's a way that's already occurred, both in terms of the death of Christ and also the casting of Satan into the pit. And there's a way it's still occurring. How is it still occurring? The church is still taking possession of the earth. Demons are still being resisted, prayed against. The preaching of the word is going forth. And so we still have to deal with demonic activity in the kingdom of Satan. We still have to deal with the world. We still have to deal with the flesh. But Satan, as a particular person, has been crushed in at least those two ways. On the cross and in the binding. Put into torment. The being crushed is the ongoing spiritual warfare. And he will be crushed in that in the last day, on the day of judgment, with the general resurrection, there will be a casting of judgment and a worsening of condition. And the ultimate and final destruction of everything that was subordinate to him at any time. And so the removal of all curse, the removal of all wickedness, the replacing of Satan's rule in every part with the rule of Christ, the replacing of the world's domain with the church, the replacing of the flesh with the spirit will be complete. Now there's a blessing there at the end. And that blessing reads... The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. Amen. At the very end of the book, of verse 24, it says, The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Amen. We've got the addition of the word all. But otherwise, it's the same blessing. So in between, we have these greetings to the church in Rome. But that blessing... We get to this blessing and there's a call for the grace of God, the grace of God to be given, the grace that's given in Christ Jesus. First, what I want to do is I want to pause on that and ask you to think about the word grace. It's an important word. We say salvation is by grace alone. We say justification is by grace alone. What is grace? Okay, Grace is not some substance. It's not a ball that you can roll around and like throw at each other. Grace is a rational attitude of the mind. It's an attitude in God's mind. It's favor 
It's not just any favor. Because God is favoring the righteous angels based upon their keeping of the covenant of works. They do righteousness and God rewards them. Christ isn't receiving grace from God the Father. Christ is righteous. By his own merits he has favored. But we are sinners. We are fallen. We, if we receive favor from God, it is not something we've merited. And in fact, we have demerited it. It is mercy. We deserve punishment. We receive blessing. Grace is a rational attitude of the mind. It's demerited favor. We are guilty in Adam. We are corrupt from our conception. We don't have a single bastion of goodness in us. There's, There's nothing good in us of our own natures to get the meritorious uh, to, 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 fa- to get favor from God, to merit anything from God. We are engaged in a constant transgression against God's law. We, we fail to do what we should do. We do things we shouldn't do. We have a disorder of our affections and of our thoughts. We don't believe the things we should believe. We receive the favor of God as demerited favor. Grace is particular. It's for His elect. God unconditionally chooses whom he is going to save from eternity past and whom he is going to punish for their sins. He plans everything that happens in history, including all evil things, including the the murder of the Lord Jesus Christ. He planned that for the display of his glory. He is not the actor of evil. He is not the one who is responsible for evil. Because he has no one above him and no standard above him. He holds people responsible for their particular sins. But his grace is particular. His love is for his. The atonement is limited. And grace, rather than being universal or common, is particular. God's grace is effectual with the doctrine of irresistible grace. Everyone he wants to save, he saves. Now, sometimes in the scriptures, you'll see the word grace used to talk about gifts of grace. Gifts that are given out out of the motive of grace or that they would appear to be grace as opposed to grace itself. So sanctification, you'll see talked about as, as grace sometimes. Grace, sanctification is not the attitude of God. It's, it's the work of God motivated by his attitude of grace. So we, we, we have this, this benediction or prayer. Hopefully, thinking through what grace is, Think about this with more depth. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. Amen. What is he saying? He's saying, may there be a steady, unchanging grace of God upon you. May the gifts of God's grace be given to you. May you grow in sanctification. Right? There's this broadness of the blessings that God gives that are being called down. So then you get to verse 21. Timothy, my fellow worker, and Lucius, Jason, and Sisypater, my countrymen, greet you. Okay, so Timothy, you, and this is the Timothy that's re- talked to in First and Second Timothy. He's referred to in multiple places by Paul. There's a lot in the scriptures about Timothy. I was tempted to spend a lot of time talking about Timothy and tracing that out and decided 
I'd probably get there and have about four minutes left, which is what I've got. And so I wouldn't do that. But Timothy, you would have a great deal of joy if you went to any Bible website and searched for the name Timothy and just read about Timothy in the different places of Scripture. You'll find it a delight, I promise. And you will be blessed by thinking about his faithful example and the work that Timothy did. He's a fellow worker. There's an encouragement. Remember we talked about words of honor? This is Paul is honoring Timothy. He's saying, Timothy greets you and he's my fellow worker. Acknowledging him as a fellow worker. Lucius, Jason, and Sisypiter, my countrymen. So he's saying these are, these are fellow Jews. You can translate countrymen as relatives, kinsmen. Uh, it seems as though he's referring to the fact that they are fellow Jews. Um, Origen, in his commentary on this, he says that uh, Lucius uh, was Luke. James Montgomery Boyce is uh, in strong disagreement that this is Luke. I don't know. Uh, if I had to tell you which I thought, I would say, well, I generally think that the, the scriptures are going to refer to same, sim, the same people repeatedly because you're going to have the scriptures helping us to have usefulness and efficiency. God has, has planned references. He plans history to be able to refer back to things. And so I'd say the only other person in the scriptures that I could find that I think it could be would be Lucius of Cyrene from Acts 13. He's a, he's a prophet um, in a church that Paul is in. And so I, I think that this is either uh, Luke or it's, it's, it's Lucius, um, but I, I am uncertain there. So that's my best effort to identify that. Uh, Jason, um, the other Jason that this could be is the Jason in Thessalonica um, in Acts 17. Um, so you might want to go read that text if you want to know more about Jason. He would be a guy who provided a place for um, the Apostle Paul to work out of to preach. And so he provided sort of a home for hospitality and a center for preaching. Um, and so Sipiter is typically identified as a person named Sopiter of Berea. Those are two different ways of, of saying the name. So there's other documents that are outside of the Bible where you have those names being used of the same person, for example. So uh, if, this is the, if this person is referred to elsewhere in Scripture, uh, it would probably be Sopater of Berea in Acts 20. Okay, so there's a, a person there. Now remember, Paul here is writing from Corinth. And so these people, you're, you're going to look at the book of Acts, the people here are going to be referenced around the time when Paul's in Corinth. You're going to have different people getting referenced. And so the people that he's talking about, you can find the cluster of these people around that same area of Acts in the late teens and around 20. You get, you get to that, that sort of zone of Acts. Now, we have a few other names that come up. Okay, so Tertius. Tertius means third. Okay, he's the guy who's referred to. Tertius wrote the letter. Okay, so what is he doing? He's acting as the secretary for the Apostle Paul. We're told in Galatians the Apostle Paul has large handwriting because his hands are apparently messed up whether that's from tent making and, and kind of missing with the hammer too many times, or whether it's from torture, from persecution, or a combination of the things, or he just had other things to do besides practicing his handwriting. Uh, the, the Apostle Paul uh, apparently wrote with really big letters. And so uh, he, when he signs his name, uh, his name is distinctive, his handwriting is distinctive, not because it's so pretty. Tertius wrote the letter, and Tertius is given the opportunity to greet. And so Tertius seems to be a believer who is writing not just as a paid scribe, not just as a servant who has to do what he's told, 
but as a believer who's able to offer this as service to the Lord Jesus Christ. Whatever you do, whether it's writing things down to the glory of God, whether it's doing uh, whatever work, picking up trash, changing diapers, doing whatever thing, if you're doing dominion work to the glory of God, it is service that has everlasting value. Any good work done in faith to the glory of God, whether it's writing down somebody else's words, or doing something that you find menial, glorifies God. And the Lord Jesus Christ will not forget any of them. So Tertius, um, his name means third. Why would somebody be named third? Is this some parent just got bored? And you, you know what? I'm tired, of sick of, I'm tired of thinking of names. This is the third son. You're a third. Right? Well, there's, there's, a, there's a cultural context. Um, if you go, if you went to pre-communist China, rich households would have servants there. You'd have first boy, second boy, third boy. First boy was sort of the butler. Second boy would be, you might think of a, a valet or something who's a little bit below, still interacts with the master of the house a good deal, but for a lower rank. Third boy would be you know, lower than that. Fourth boy would be like footmen in, in English you know, grand houses. Okay, so you, you get that down fairly low. In Rome, there was a similar practice. The, the servant, or typically slave, because the, the master's going, I don't want to think a lot about the names, so here's your name, High Primus. You're the first, you're Primus. And then there'd be Secundus. You actually find Secundus in the book of Acts. And so you have this common thing of people based upon a rank, a rank in the house, being given the name Primus or Secundus, or you might get to third, and you have Tertius. And you know, we actually have somebody who's a fourth. You get to Tertius, sorry, you get, you get to um, Tertius, and then there is Cordus. Thank you. So you have these, these names that mean third, fourth. And so you, you can see that, right? Tertiary, third, you know, quarter, you have Quartus. So you have these names. So that's, that's the indicator that these are names that are for their rank in a house. Now, Gaius, um, Gaius is sometimes, there's a dispute about who he is, and I'm not going to go into that right now, but he is obviously the host and as a host, um, he is providing hospitality to Paul, and he is also providing hospitality to the church. There's, that's either a church meeting in his house, which is this is different language than Paul normally uses for that church in his house, or it's just he's very hospitable to any saint. And so I, I think the second one, because it's different language than how he talks about the church in his house when he, when he talks about other people, okay? So I think this is talking about hospitality, and he is hospitable there. Gaius is the one who's providing the service. You know, he's the one who's, who's the host. And so the service of Tertius is essentially Gaius has an employee or slave whom he is putting the time and effort of that person under his authority to serve Paul. And so there's that service. So that service there is coming from the expense of his house. And so if you have wealth, if you have employees, using that to bless the church we're given that as a positive example there, and he's commended. 
and he's given this opportunity to greet the church at Rome. We get to Erastus, and you have, he's the treasurer of the city. Um, the word there is translated treasurer as oikonomos. Okay, so it's uh, the law of the house or economy, but it, it's, it's this idea of the one who governs a house. But he's of the city, right? So that's a common term that was used for a treasurer. Uh, if no one else other than Ethan gets this, he's either a quester or an Adel, okay? So, that idea that he is a city magistrate, he's a lesser magistrate there in a pagan government. This guy is filling a governmental function, and he's a high-honored position, and he is a believer, and he is greeting the church at Rome. He's a brother. He's identified as a brother. And we have that benediction at the end. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Amen. Well, rather than re-explaining everything I just explained about grace above, you know. And so then we get to amen. Amen, there's two principal uses of the word amen. And I want you to take this away and to make amen more valuable as a word. In, in the book of 1 Corinthians, there's this thing, there's a reference to the amen. In the context, Paul's talking about the use of amen after a prayer. If somebody prays and you say amen, you participate in that prayer. Hey, now, you, you should not participate in a prayer if it's got petitions that are sinful or if it's given in the wrong form. Right? If, you, if it's given to somebody other than God of the Bible, if it's not given to the Father, you're going to say, okay, I'm participating in a prayer that is not in the proper form. So you should not say amen unless you can agree with the form of the prayer and the content of it. You, you link yourself to that prayer when you say amen. When you say amen after someone teaches something, you're asserting, I'm a second witness. I agree. Now, you could, if you say it after your own statement, like apparently Paul does, so maybe we should all become cooler and be like Paul and say amen after we say things. Uh, but you're, you're, it's sort of like saying, but seriously, this is, this is, listen to this. You know, Jesus says, uh, you know, verily, verily. Right? This, is, this is the same sort of thing. This is truly. So this is an assertion. It's a reassertion of the point. If you say it after something you say, you are asserting it more strongly or, or emphasizing it. If somebody else says it after something you say, they're voicing agreement. And if you say it after a prayer, you're taking that prayer as though it were your own. Okay, so we want prayers to the Father in the name of Christ. Those are the prayers we want to participate in with lawful petitions. So, we've gone through the book of Romans. Comments, questions, objections from the voting members and those with speaking rights. Mr. Cordova. Uh, thank you for your teaching over uh, a question, just a couple of comments. Uh, thank you
keep Philippians 3, 12 through 15 in our minds. Praise the Lord. Thank you. Mr. Price? Yeah, so um, you notice it talks about the heel, the biting of the heel, which is the back of the foot, and the eating of dust. So there's this sort of trailing behind. There's a being on the ground. Um, there's this, um, it, it's a curse as opposed to um, so the serpent, a dragon, Satan. These are different ways that this, you, know, you get this referred to. Um, the idea here of, of the curse, the eating of the dust um, has to do with sort of this, um, this lowly place, this unpleasantness, and being in a position of, of being behind, so losing, and also uh, this idea of being low and well-positioned to be crushed by the heel. Mr. Cody. Yes, I believe Satan is bound. thousand years, and what's the evil that's going on in this, in this world right now? That's just a leftover demonic activity, but it would be so much worse if, if he weren't bound. Yeah, so, uh, so I believe that Satan is bound. Um, that doesn't mean that the kingdom of Satan has been totally wiped out. Right? We're in a mop-up operation. We are removing demonic power. Uh, we are removing the deception. Um, we are applying the word of God. So this is a... This is a conquest, right? We've been told to disciple the nations. And so uh, Satan was deceiving the nations um, and he being removed. There are elements of his kingdom, you know, various duchies and, you know, whatever that were under his authority that are now, we are, we are dividing and conquering. We are, we're taking them on. They don't have an effective unified uh, commander. It's a mopping up operation. Right. Um, and, uh, okay, so, uh, but he is, he's in the pit and he's suffering, but um, at the end, though, we will glorify in his destruction. Yeah, so there, there will be a, a, a worsening of his torment in the, at the Day of Judgment. Yeah. Good. All right, any other comments, questions, objections? All right, then let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We ask that you would cause us to uh, know the truth and to apply it. I ask that you would bless us with strength and wisdom. I ask that you would cause us to be fruitful and to magnify your name. I ask that you'd help us with this Lord's Day to have fruitful conversations out of your word and to exhort each other to godliness. I pray this in Christ's name. Amen.